Welcome to no, not Cinema Journal. Welcome to Ooh, try that again. Welcome to the Journal for which I realized one of the last times uh, I was calling it the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies, and it's Journal of. Yeah. So, welcome to the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. I am Chris Becker. We're not the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. What, journal for. We're not the Journal. <laughs> Oh, did I forget to say the podcast? <laughs> this is starting out great. <laughs> you know, we're we're fifty now. <laughs> we are. This so I think it's time for um, not only times. a colonoscopy, but maybe um, <laughs> memory tests. And that yeah, kind of thing. exactly. Okay. Yeah. You'd think after fifty times, I would have it right. You'd think. Welcome Try again. to welcome to the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies podcast. Wait, Acamedia. I forgot our name. Welcome to Acamedia, the podcast. Wait, so it's welcome to. Oh, the boy. Journal of Cinema and Media, the Journal of Cinema and Media, <laughs> journal, <laughs> journal of Cinema and Media <laughs> Studies presents Acamedia. You know, I think we're going to have to rethink that, like that whole like uh, producing presents co-production uh, sort of language, and I think mm. maybe we're just going to have to be welcome to Acamedia. Okay, uh, I'm fine with that. Brought to you by, <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe that works. Well, uh, yeah, we, and then we should. If if uh, journal journal of cinema and media studies does a jingle, then we say brought to you by, and we pause, <laughs> and they play their jingle. Maybe Todd Thompson, Todd, get on our that. music composer, Please pull us out of this ditch. Can create a jingle. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. But yes, this is our fiftieth episode. Hey there. Oh my god. This is Acamedia. This is the fiftieth Acamedia. What do you think? Looking back on. So what has it been? Did we start twenty thirteen? So six like that. years, yeah. something like that. Okay. I can't even remember. <laughs> All right. So what, what are we doing this time? Well, we do have some some special, a little bit of special content for the 50th as uh, we carry on. One of our compatriots is, uh, she'll, she's still involved, of course, but now past president of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. So I got a chance to sit down with Pamela Wojcik, our departing president of SCMS, to have a short conversation about her tenure. Good stuff there. Yep. And then it's very exciting in our 50th episode to have one of our uh, producers offer his first offering. So this is Frank Mondelli at Stanford University. He's got an interview with a colleague at Stanford, Oshayir, and so we've got that also. Good stuff. It's nice to uh, hear new voices and get out of some of the uh, some of the old ruts. Definitely. Uh, and I guess we could say at our 50th episode, this point of reflection and looking forward, if anyone has comments on what we do here, what we could do better, what we could do worse. We are at info at aca-media.org. Wait, that's the oh, website, no, no. right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, there I go, trying, uh -huh. to, trying to help you. Well, I need help, so, Man. but yeah. So yeah, if anyone has suggestion, we also had uh, our producer, Todd Thompson, um, mention that it is possible for us now to be on Spotify and Pandora. So if that is a place where you would like to hear Acamedia, shoot us an email and let us know, and we will get ourselves posted up there. I'd like to see what kind of other uh, content somebody would be listening to where Acamedia would just kind of <laughs> scroll in. Right. So you're listening to Beyonce right. and Lizzo and then... And then it's like, welcome. <laughs> welcome to this thing whose name I can't get right. Man, we are just that hip. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question about what, what category would be in, what would be, what would we be adjacent to? Algorithmic madness. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So uh, shall we kick things off with the uh, interview with Pam Wojcik? Yeah, let's do it. So I spoke with her in London. So I was in London this summer for the very first SEMS Partnership Program Regional Conference. So she talks about that in this interview here where we had a conference in London about London, basically kind of a little mini SCMS. It was a great success, had a great time. Um, so I sat down with her for about 10 minutes. Uh, one technical note, sorry for the booming, uh, boomy audio here. I recorded this in a small London room and with 20-foot high ceilings. I don't know if people were just so much taller back then. It's a, whatever, 18th century building or something like that, and uh, really high ceilings, and not such a great place to record an interview, but yeah. We may do. So it, here... Oh, it, It's mm-hmm. worth squinting your ears to hear it. Okay. So, start squinting, folks. Here's Pam Wojcik. Welcome to Acomedia, Pam Wojcik, the outgoing or already out uh, president of SCMS, the former president of SCMS. And uh, we want to just have a quick chat with you about, you know, looking back and looking forward for SCMS. Um, so first of all, I'm curious about what expectations you had going into the job and whether those were met or exceeded um, or, you you know, things that you weren't even, you know, planning to happen happen. So what was expectations compared to the actual experience of being SCMS president? My expectations were that I would go in and be able to easily change SCMS in the ways that I thought it needed to be changed, which was mainly, I was mainly focused on the size, um, because SCMS, after the failed Tokyo conference, we had the double conference in LA, which expanded the size of the conference, and it never shrunk back down. And I thought, oh, I won't be able to do that. And it turns out everything at SCMS is much more complicated than one might think. And so part of the problem is we book the hotels years in advance, and we have a certain nut to meet. So cutting it in that way is small or difficult. The more interesting difficulty and one that really was a learning curve for me is thinking about um, our membership and the needs of various people at different kinds of institutions to really have their name in that book. Mm. And so in order to cut the conference significantly, we would have to radically reshape our acceptance rates, Mm -hmm. which would not necessarily impact grad students and precarious labor more than other people, but they would be more damaged by it because it would be harder for them to get the funds to come. And so that became a more persuasive argument to me to keep the size as it is. We're also expanding. Um, The other things that sort of came up during my tenure very strongly were not only the precarious labor organization forming and trying to really think about that and have a precarious labor um, board member, but also moves toward really thinking about globalization and increasing our non-US members. And so that's another reason that our membership is growing and the conference is growing, so all of that. Um, The other surprises were just what it means to be the president. I'd been on the board before, um, and being president, I didn't fully understand what that meant in terms of being in charge of a labor force, um, so that there's a home office in Oklahoma, and I've had to be involved in some 
you know, sort of hirings and issues there, things like that. And also just running a board meeting. <laughs> I had to be, I had to go to the um, American Council of Learned Societies, gives you training in sort of what's a board meeting and how do you run one and how do you make it not miserable. Yeah. Um, you and I work together. We've sat in meetings together. You know I'm the worst person. I'm the worst eye roller. I'm the worst. I get bored. I get frustrated. And so it was very important to me to run a good meeting. So that's actually been great training. Yeah. Well, and one follow-up on the idea of, you know, kind of trying to reconceive the size of, of SEMS, because I've heard it, it might even be Leslie Lamont who described when we interviewed her for Acamedia a number of years ago, that SEMS is kind of difficult because it's a small, big organization, but a big, small organization, and it's right. just sort of awkwardly fit in there. Um, and so one thing, when we're ta- talking here in London at Notre Dame's London Global Gateway, because we are hosting a, a small regional conference, and it's sponsored by SEMS. So another question I was going to have was like what kind of forward momentum do you see happening in SEMS and I wonder if this is part of it the idea of you know it's still SEMS but we can have smaller regional conferences tied to SEMS. Right we're just developing this is a sort of pilot um, an SEMS partnership program and the idea is SEMS can't afford to mount multiple conferences a year Um, But we know that there's a desire to have more regional and more global events. Um, So our hope is that we can partner with different institutions. In this case, it's the University of Notre Dame and King's College London. And we're all kind of pooling resources. King's and Notre Dame are providing spaces and receptions. SCMS is providing some of the funding and some of the publicity and distribution. And the idea is that hopefully we can go to other interesting sites um, between the bigger conference. Um, The other thing of being a big, small, small, big is it really limits our ability in the U.S. to go to mid-sized cities. Mm. So, you know, it would be great to go to Pittsburgh. It would be great to go to Memphis. But unless we start branching out and going to multiple hotels, Mm. we can't find spaces that are big enough for us. And so we're, we're kind of at the at a sort of important point, I think, for being able to stay within one hotel. Yeah. Um, but the partnership program should allow us to maybe not only do a London or go to Poland or go to Italy or China, um, but also maybe, you know, Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> China or Pittsburgh, all right. Yeah. Um, so your successor, Paula Massoud, have you given her advice or thoughts about, you know, things she should uh, look out for on the horizon or challenge she's got ahead of her? Well, one of the things with the presidency is she's already been in the room for two years mm-hmm. because this is a six-year project. So I was president-elect for two years, then president for two years, and I'll still be in the room for two years as past president. Mm-hmm. So Paula and I have already been working together Um the biggest things on the table right now, I think, are we had two task force forces last year. One of them was for global diversity, and so part of that is thinking about how we can manage, um, as JCMS is undergoing some changes, if there are ways that we can take away the sort of tax that's been applied to global members because of the different postage rates to get the journal, Mm -hmm. Um, if there are any issues or prejudices in the way we read abstracts um, from other countries, we're really trying to be very aware of that and try to really talk to the program committee and try to bring as many global members as we can onto the program committee to make sure we're giving everyone a fair shot. 
Um, thinking about translation issues, thinking about you know the possibility of doing panels in other languages, all those kinds of things. Um, the other task force was an anti-racism, equity, and diversity task force. And we've been doing things. Um, we put in place a special program for indigenous members and scholars working with indigenous media that they could have a kind of step-down membership to try and attract people because we found out that SCMS was not viewed as a friendly place. Mm. Um, so we've been working really hard on that. But then, you know, we also have heard from various members um, that SCMS doesn't feel as welcoming to African-American scholars as it should. Mm -hmm. um, even the book exhibit, <laughs> you know, sort of people feel that it's not representative of the broader span of work or scholars. Um, so we're working on a number of things with that. And then the precarious labor organization. So I think those areas in terms of diversifying and trying to make SCMS sort of as accessible and equitable as possible are the biggest things probably going forward. Mm -hmm. Big goals, big challenges, but also, you know, important commitments to make, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so final question then, uh, how do you hope, well, first of all, how do you, how do you, how, how do you hope the Pam Wojcik era of SCMS <laughs> will rem be remembered? Like, what will be the legacy of Pam's two years? Um, I think probably my two legacies would be one that people don't like, which is the um, policy that you can only do one thing at SCMS. Right, yeah, you're, you're yoked to that forever. I am yoked to that, and I am happy to be yoked to that because it, it was done because what we realized was that 15% of people were doing two things or more. Mm. Those 15% tended to be senior scholars, so it would be, you know, someone pretty fancy would do their own panel and then someone would ask them to also be in a round table or show up and chair this. Um, when we took that away, there was a lot of, people were very annoyed and upset and it makes it a little more complicated to put together your panel because you can't just grab someone to be the chair. Um, but this is another way that we've opened up more seats at the table. So those 15% now are gonna be filled by other people. And what we've done in recent years is when people get their acceptance and rejection letters, if it's a rejection, we say, hey, but you could still be chair of a panel. So we bring people in that way. Um, and I think it's great. It's allowed more individual people to present um, the size of the sort of conference in terms of individual participants has increased. And so that's, that's an important thing. Um, the other thing, and I think people are happier with this, is the development of the seminars, mm. which I was very keen to have at SCMS because I wanted a different kind of conversation. Um, I've done them both years. I did one with Paula Masood. She and I ran one the first year. And then last year, I participated in one just as an auditor. And I think they're great. Mm -hmm. They're really 
a wonderful space to have a more in-depth conversation, to really get to know people. We met grad students from Nigeria and Latin America, you know, people we wouldn't have encountered otherwise, that never would have come up and talked to us, that we wouldn't have necessarily gone to seek out their papers. Um, so that's, I think, a really exciting thing. So those are probably the two biggest pan. <laughs> Legacies. <laughs> All right. Well, it does feel like a sort of a you know a period of change and moving forward in SEMS. So thank you for for being our leader for the last two years. Thank you, and uh, we're looking forward to this gateway event. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm super happy to be here in London doing this. So yeah. So thanks yeah. for that. All right. Thank you. Onward to Pittsburgh and China. good interview. Yeah, it's a great conversation and really interesting uh, food for thought about the past and, and future of SEMS. It really is like like trying to steer a, an oil tanker. Mm-hmm. You know, like she, I appreciated that she talked about things that she thought would be productive changes and, and in many ways were, but also how difficult it is to turn one small dial or flip one lever and it has all kinds of rippling consequences. Right, that idea of wanting to make the conference smaller to make it a more valuable experience for everyone, but the unintended consequences then of others not being able to participate and making it a more narrow institution. So those are key issues, especially at the same time as there's this urge to diversify. It's a difficult line to, to follow. Yeah, and I'm really glad to see the institution as a whole trying to deal more creatively with questions of region and, and national homes and, and also with precarious labor. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that has become an increasingly complex and increasingly large part of our constituency, and it's nice to see some efforts to, to deal with that um, up and down. Yeah. And it's not easy, especially as a big organization, to figure out how to do something that is going to take efforts on every single level from small to big. But the intention has to be there before you get anywhere with that. Yeah. It's hard not to. And I know that you know, SCMS or SCS or the Society of Cinematologists, for that matter, <laughs> was never uh, a rarefied faculty club of endowed professors who were fully funded for all of their interactions. But it's still interesting to think back on an era when at least there was a higher percentage of those kinds of folks involved. And the and the big questions were, how do we make sure that it's accessible to junior faculty and then increasingly graduate students? Um, and now there are so many different kinds of categories of labor, and so mm-hmm. few of us are really funded in our in our research practices. So right. it's 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 really, really important for the organization to continue to respond to that issue. And I also really encourage people out there to be thinking about the SCMS partnership program and the idea of regional conferences. Uh, As I said, the the one in London was a great success. How we got people there who are not SCMS members, who got to get a taste of the SCMS community. And I think there's so much potential for that. And I had conversations with a number of people at the conference about additional regional conferences we can do, in particular with uh, Brendan Cradell at Oakland University, we came up with an idea of doing an SEMS Rust Belt, the idea of having a conference with, you know, professors and, you know, working filmmakers and so forth, stretching from Milwaukee over to Pittsburgh and all of the Rust Belt cities in between and about the image of the Rust Belt. Um, The, you know, Rust Belt is a place of media production. So that's something we got in the works. So those kinds of ideas, not just an individual city, but, you know, regions, I think there's a lot of promise in that idea. Yeah, I think so too. And it, and it, uh, it opens up new opportunities for people to get to conferences that would be a little bit more affordable for them. 
Um, but it also brings new voices into the conversation, and that's something that is incredibly valuable you know, mm -hmm. to, to have a, a kind of de- or recentering sort of moment. It gives you a chance to recognize insights that, that might not make it into a, a typical academic conversation if your only frame is the sort of normative institution. Mm -hmm. Well, and with the idea of decentering, you have just provided a beautiful segue to our second segment. 50 episodes in, you got the segues down. Yeah. yeah. And so this idea of, uh, like Pam Wojcik brought up, the idea of pushing SCMS outside of its traditional U.S. and Western isolation, our next interview is related to that as well. Um, this is Frank Mondelli. He's interviewing Stanford professor Usha Ayer. And the uh, focus here is especially about diversifying our work and the university curricula beyond the simplistic West and the rest binary. So they get into a lot of really great stuff with that idea as well as things like the study of dance. Um, so great stuff in this interview from Frank. Bring it on. Usha Ayer teaches here at Stanford in the Department of Art and Art History. Her research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of cinema, performance, and gender studies with a specific focus on stardom, body cultures, spectatorial desire and engagement, and the political economy of transnational media. Professor Ayer teaches courses like the History of World Cinema, the Art Cinemas of India, and Theories of Melodrama. Thank you so much for joining us, Usha. We're so happy to have you here on the show at Acumedia. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. Uh, I'm quite a fan of Acumedia and listen to it regularly. So it's a special pleasure to be here today. Great. And I heard that you have a book coming out. Right? I do. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so the book is tentatively titled The Dancing Heroine, Choreographing Performance in Popular Hindi Cinema. Uh, it's under contract with Oxford University Press, and I should have the ma completed manuscript to them uh, later this year in the fall. Um, the book is a study of dancing heroines, dancing women in popular Hindi cinema from the 1930s to the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, and while Bollywood is kind of, to anyone's mind, when you say Bollywood, what comes up is song and dance sequences, uh, it's surprising there isn't much research and book-length kind of studies of dance in particular. Um, so I'm kind of looking at dance and what dance helps us theorize about cinema in general um, and how particularly gendered and classed bodies dance on screen, uh, how that kind of inflects the gaze upon these dancing bodies. So it's sort of an engagement with performance cultures, um, with feminist film theory on the gaze on upon the female body, um, but also a kind of theoretical exploration of dance and movement and cinematic technologies. That sounds really interesting. Why do you think that people haven't explored dance as much in full-length works? It's, uh, I think screen dance studies is a more recent field mm -hmm. uh, and it is deeply interdisciplinary. So when I started off writing this as a dissertation, I was warned that um, I didn't know enough about dance. I'm not a dancer at all. Uh, and dance is a particularly embodied form of performance. Um, so it requires some knowledge, in-depth knowledge of both cinema and dance. Um, and, but screen dance studies is a really exciting field. And I have learned a lot from dance studies. In fact, I'm writing um, a chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Film Theory, which is around reframing film acting. Uh, and I'm sort of thinking about how film acting across the world has been theorized using 
theater models, uh, uh, models of acting from the theater, but what happens if we use instead movement models from dance studies? How do we kind of think about what we define as good acting, which is assumed to be a kind of expression of interiority, of complex psychological um, kind of interiority, but instead if we think about dance as exteriority and expressing other kinds of bodily affects, what do we gain from, uh, from bringing these two fields of study together? Right. So it sounds like you're really working to build a very interdisciplinary work, not only in terms of disciplines, but also in terms of bringing um, critical attention here in the United States academia to um, forms of dance and cinema that maybe we don't talk about so often in the, in the academy here. Yes, absolutely. Beyond just knowing of Bollywood, I think um, the book hopefully will kind of alert people to longer histories of performance in South Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not just um, South Asia because dance has been a syncretic mode of performance, as has cinema in South Asia from the early 20th century. So when you speak about it, you're also speaking about Anna Pavlova mm -hmm. um, and other international figures in performance, Matahari, Cambodian dance, Sri Lankan dance, etc. Well, that's super exciting. Looking Thank forward you. to reading the work. When's it coming out? Um, well, hopefully sometime next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds great. Um, so that sort of leads us to um, the topic of discussion today. So last year, you spoke alongside two other art and art history professors at an event called Unwarping the Non-Western, <laughs> which is a great title. Um, and that event explored the quote-unquote, West versus non-West construct um, and its implications, limitations, and its dangers. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what you spoke about at that event and maybe some of the conversations that you were all able to have there? Sure. Um, thanks for asking me about that event. It was organized, like you said, by undergraduate students in the Department of Art and Art History, which is where Film and Media Studies resides as a program at Stanford. Um, and I think it was actually... Uh, it it came up as an event uh, because we now have so many international students and students of color amongst our undergraduate population, as do most people listening to this podcast who are in the academy now. Um, and they they kind of notice how um, what the traditional canon sort of celebrates and what's left out and what doesn't speak at all to their experiences in the world. Um, so this was a kind of student-born initiative uh, to have more non-Western um, theorizing as well as objects to study in the curriculum. Um, I mainly spoke about, because I've been teaching the World Cinema Survey course, it's one of the core courses required for the Film and Media Studies major, um, I spoke about world cinema as a theoretical problem, uh, which is to say we really need to unsettle the kind of hoary old center-periphery relations between um, Eurocentric kind of um, film theory, um, the, the objects mainly in our introduction to film and uh, most history survey courses are Hollywood and Hollywood, popular cinema, Hollywood stands in for popular cinema, European cinema stands in for art cinema, and there's early Soviet cinema for <laughs> kind of ur-political cinema, but little else is kind of uh, squarely part of the canon. So it, at, at this um, 
at this talk, I did something that I often like to do with students, which is I played a German fan video of a Bollywood song uh, from the 2003 film Kal Ho Na Ho. Um, and the German fan video is a shot-by-shot remake of the original, which features Bollywood and the world's biggest star, Shah Rukh Khan. Um, so this kind of completely queers questions of scale. The German fan video is small budget, uh, low scale kind of reproduction, while the Indian film product is big budget, shot in Brooklyn, etc. Right. So it unsettles what people think of as the conventional flows of cultural capital from West to the rest. Yeah, I've, um, I remember last year I attended a lecture with you and you showed that same video. And it was interesting that the audience was sort of laughing as they were watching the video, seeing this German guy kind mm-hmm. of sing in this uh, beautiful Hindi singing voice. Um, and so mm-hmm. what do you think is sort of lying behind that laughter, like that kind of unsettling like you're talking about? It's interesting you ask because I'm in the final week of teaching my world cinema course this spring and we just watched Om Shanti Om in class this week and when I showed students the uh, fan video yesterday there was a lot of laughter as well and so I really had to kind of prod and ask them gently uh, what exactly they're laughing at Um, and it turns out Uh, I don't know, they found it deeply unsettling to even be asked that question. And it is an unsettling question because are you laughing at the German fan? Are you laughing at Bollywood itself? Um, And so we kind of slowly spoke about it and they said it's amusing that... um, the German the German cultural product is seen as derivative, whereas Bollywood and the Global South, which has always been read through this lens of belatedness, um, of always catching up with the West, uh, is seen now as the kind of generating force. And Om Shanti Om itself is a very self-reflexive intertextual film. So it's paying homage in turn to Singing in the Rain. Uh, and as I speak about in, in what might hopefully be a future book project, uh, it's also drawing on Caribbean music, um, something that my students at the University of the West Indies alerted me to. Um, So actually, if we trace these kinds of networks, um, we arrive at a very different sense of the global, uh, which shifts quite significantly the Euro-Atlantic kind of centered uh, canon. That sounds really interesting. Could you tell me more about your experience teaching Om Shanti Om and other films like that in the West Indies? And what were you able to sort of glean from that experience that maybe you brought here to Stanford or other places you've taught? Sure. Um, so uh, my job at the University of the West Indies from 2014 to 15, that was my first tenure track job before I moved back to the States. Um, it was really interesting to teach Indian cinema there. Uh, at the West Indies, uh, the uh, Trinidad and Tobago in particular, uh, have a 40 per- up to around approximately 40% Indo-Caribbean population and around a 40% Afro-Caribbean population. And then the remainder, remaining is a kind of mix um, of other ethnic identities. Um, so Indian cinema has been in Trinidad for a long time, since the 1930s. And a lot of kind of racial identities have been formed around cathexis to the cinema, the love of the cinema. Hindi films were shown on national Trinidad television every Sunday afternoon. So everyone across ethnic lines grew up watching uh, Hindi films. Um, What I was struck by when I showed them Om Shanti Om uh, was that they identified that the title song of that film, Om Shanti Om, um, which which also features in the 1980 um, Hindi film Kars by Subhash Gai, 
which Om Shanti Om in turn references, cites, uh, etc., is actually appropriated from a 1974 Trinidadian soca song uh, by Ras Shorty or Lord Shorty, an Afro-Caribbean soca singer, in fact, invents the genre of soca or soul calypso. Um, interestingly, Ras Shorty picks up this tune uh, from, uh, from the kind of uh, spiritual songs that are sung in his Indo-Caribbean village that he grew up in. So this is a fantastic example of the circularity of borrowings uh, that one can trace if one kind of uh, pays close attention to the reverberations, the nomadic energy, as Lucia Nagib calls it, of world cinema. Um, a world cinema that has many centers, that does not have a single center as it's traditionally kind of enshrined in our curricula. That gets me thinking about this whole idea of a West versus non-West construct to begin with. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about um, where you sort of see that in your role as a professor, as a researcher, in sort of communicating to these audiences who maybe have had a very centered uh, view of what world literature is to begin with. Um, yeah, uh, actually, that's why I, I like teaching what is considered, you know, a core course or rep repeated course like world cinema, because it really gives me the space um, to think through what I'm doing with my scholarship in the American Academy uh, and what is the role of what are kind of categorized as area studies specializations within film and media studies. Um, and uh, to use that as an occasion to think about this is not just going to be a survey of films from here and there, right? Uh, just the way we can kind of consume world cuisines, world music, world literature, all of these. In all of these, the world is elsewhere. The world is always uh, in Asia, Africa, Latin America with indigenous people. Um, it's not uh, it's not mainstream white European American cultural production. Um, so to really decenter that requires. Um, produces a kind of uh, really important diversity in the canon and makes us pay attention to how uh, what we call theory is actually Western theory. Uh, theory is, uh, and this is not at all an anti-theory kind of uh, discussion, which, you know, which is uh, happening and the kind of anti-intellectual stance of anti-theory is very problematic and worrisome, uh, but this isn't that debate. This is a debate about, as Paul Willeman says, what is wrong with Western theory is not that it's Western, but that so much of it fails to realize that it is Western. Um, and so uh, it, it's really to kind of understand that theory, which is with a capital T, is a kind of generalized abstraction that arises out of very particular historical moments and particular cultural objects. Uh, so the, the typical pattern has been to use Western theory and apply it uh, to, to kind of objects from elsewhere. Uh, and really to kind of think about the West and the rest binary and to decenter that is to decenter the place of one kind of theoretical paradigm to study all kinds of objects. You, for example, study Japanese or are studying Japanese video cultures, media cultures, um, and we've been talking about translating Japanese theoretical and film critical works um, in, indeed as part of the new SCMS call for translations as well. Um, and I think these are really important projects uh, because the theory that we have is really from a small kind of geopolitical location of um, mainly the US, Britain, France, Germany. 
Um, and that has been used to theorize everything across the world. Uh, suture theory, apparatus theory, uh, the gaze, um, all of these has, have been kind of used as if they were universal paradigms that you could use to understand uh, audiovisual production anywhere else in the world. So we need to kind of be conscious that theory arises out of particular objects and histories and particular traditions. So I'm always encouraging students to return to other traditions that cinema is in conversation with. Um, so if you're studying Chinese melodrama, for example, you have to look at Chinese opera uh, and other theatrical and um, musical traditions uh, rather than turn to uh, to the scholarship and the really exciting scholarship on Hollywood melodrama. Um, so to put these these different things in conversation with each other will actually enrich Western theory and conceptual paradigms as well. Mm -hmm. So how do we diversify the curriculum then and sort of engage with this problem of theory and this decentering of world cinema? Mm -hmm. um, it's a long project and it's one that's been discussed for a while. Um, and some of the ways that this can be done, these are really structural questions, but even as graduate students and faculty members, there are things we could do to ensure that uh, we bring some diversity to the curriculum. And I think one is to kind of diversify the texts that uh, we teach in undergraduate and graduate methods classes. And that's not just the films or other audiovisual media that we engage with, but the theoretical texts that we engage with as well. Um, so I teach, for example, a global melodrama course. And part of the point of that course is uh, to shift the attention from, and I really do love my Hollywood melodrama scholarship. I mean, Linda Williams makes an appearance pretty much every week in um, on that syllabus. Uh, but to also put that in conversation with uh, scholarship on melodrama that's been produced elsewhere. And because I work on Indian cinema, we have a wealth of scholarship on melodrama that actually helps give nuance to our study of melodrama in other parts of the world, including in Hollywood, uh, because these have always been connected histories uh, and have been global for a long time. Uh, it's not, globalization is not just a post-90s phenomenon, right? So uh, to study connected me the connectedness of media, we also need to connect different theoretical frameworks. Um, it's also important to revisit breadth requirements for graduate students so we know how typically the non-Western is one kind of box that you tick off uh, alongside all of the other requirements you might have to do in an English department, in an art history department. Um, uh, especially if film and media studies is within other departments. And this is also with an eye to diversity in discussion of race, gender, sexuality. So diversity is really uh, this kind of broad range of, um, of paradigms that we need to engage with simultaneously. Um, and then just for ourselves, as many graduate students teach as well, and for faculty members, uh, to be self-reflexive in your teaching. Um, so ever since the Me Too movement, or even before that, every time I teach Hitchcock, and I do like teaching Hitchcock because I like the films and I like what kinds of conversations they generate, uh, but it's absolutely important for me to kind of also talk about the Me Too movement and to talk about Hitchcock's treatment of his actresses. Um, so it's important to kind of foreground how the texts that we teach are gendered, classed, 
um, and um, raced in particular ways? Uh, and what are our own blind spots in the canon that we reproduce in our syllabi and in our curriculum? Uh, what are the erasures that occur when we teach one thing, we are erasing a multitude of other possible texts that we could be teaching, right? So uh, really it's about interrogating the canon um, even as we engage with it, it's not about tossing it out, but it's a constant kind of um, critical pedagogical kind of tool in the classroom to inquire into our own choices. Yeah, you know, that gets me thinking here at Stanford, we have a quarter system. Right. So you only get 10 weeks per course. Mm -hmm. So in a way, that's kind of exciting because maybe you get to teach more courses, but it also means per course, maybe you only have 10 films you can Show. So it sounds like you're really making tough decisions as to what to include, particularly in courses like theories of melodrama, where you're trying to include a, uh, a diversity of films. Um, so how do you sort of go about making decisions as to um, what you want? What do you want to show? Do you sort of have an idea of what you want students to take away from by the end of the course first? Or do you work your way backwards um, from the films or? Do you have a particular method that has sort of worked for you in this way? Um, yeah, so I try to make the make the curriculum as diverse as possible and diverse in those multiple ways that I was just mentioning, uh, kind of geographical breadth, uh, but also addressing particular questions of race, gender, class, sexuality, uh, and to kind of queer those constantly. So to not just show maybe Todd Haynes in the melodrama class, uh, but to show a film like Anup Singh's Kissa, which is um, which is also discussing the transgender gaze, but from a location that American students might not expect it. Um, and it also kind of questions their, uh, their kind of um, sedimented ways of naming sexual behaviors and identifications. Uh, so really it's about the work that one can make each of these texts do to shift the canon and to shift, kind of, like I said, these sedimented notions of what uh, what cultural products from different parts of the world look like. So uh, films from the Japanese New Wave are uh, rarely seen by our undergraduates especially. Uh, so, you know, to show them something other than Kurosawa and Ozu and Mizoguchi, um, that really shifts their sense of, um, of gendering in Japan in the 1960s, for example. Yeah, gendering in Japan and, and also what Japanese film is or is like to begin with. Right. Because as you mentioned, every time I mention that, uh, you know, I've done work on Japanese film, usually somebody always shoots back with Kurosawa or Ozu. And usually it's Seven Samurai and Tokyo Story. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I'm all for queering in, uh, in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We sort of talked about how you make a course and what your teaching goals are for your students. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of advice might you have for up and coming professors or graduate students who are working on these sort of quote unquote non-West uh, films or, or issues or trying to queer familiar notions? Because here in the United States, the academy is kind of it depends on what school you're at, of course, but in many ways, if you want to do area studies, you have to maybe go to the area studies department. Do you have advice on how to navigate that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I have been um, 
really asking myself these questions as it's time to title my book, um, you know, as a dissertation that was about popular Hindi cinema and that was in the title. Uh, but as a book, when you kind of are concerned with readership and who is who this book is going to reach out, uh, I had this discussion with colleagues about how I do have to put popular Indian cinema or popular Hindi cinema in the title of the book. While if you're working on European or American cinema, um, you can just, you don't need to kind of um, mention the geographical reach of your project. So you can have a book like Gender Trouble uh, or, you know, um, uh, Forms of the Affects. I'm just looking around at my bookshelf. I love these <laughs> books. These are, It's not a problem with the books, but the kind of titles do not indicate that these are um, kind of uh, conceptual paradigms born out of texts from a particular set of um, a set of texts, uh, whereas everything else, like I mentioned, Rachel says this as well, uh, has to kind of indicate in its title that it is about Chinese cinema or Latin American video cultures. There's a fantastic new collection, Asian video cultures, for example. Um, so this, you have to kind of index your non-Westernness in multiple ways, uh, but in a way, it can also be a strength because you're. Uh, you have this automatic need to be interdisciplinary in your approach. Um, so you're working with Western theory, uh, you're working with non-Western texts, you have to be nimble. Um, my advice is to also look for theoretical paradigms uh, in the kind of um, culture that you're studying. Um, so Rasa theory, for example, is something I engaged with. It's uh, quite unlike the Aristotelian unities of space and time. Rasa theory in medieval South Asian performance texts is about uh, is, uh, is somewhat like affect theory uh, and how it's being articulated now, but that the performer and the, the spectator go through a range of affective emotions during a performance. Uh, so I found this really helpful, and readers of the manuscript said those were the parts that they were deeply engaged with as well. So rather than kind of just stay with uh, given paradigms of dance and um, and feminist spectatorship that I also work with, this was very helpful. So immerse yourself in, uh, in what has not been considered as productive of theory, but you will find that you're generating uh, really interesting theoretical paradigms. Um, also, uh, Studying non-Western objects produces a transnational approach, and uh, there's been a lot of emphasis on Global South strategies that exclude the West and form other kinds of connections, South-South connections, um, and that's one way to produce a really robust comparative transnational network that I'm, uh, I'm sure you'll find really productive. You know, the issue of naming is really interesting. Um, not only just for books, but also for classes. Yes. I'm sure you've run into that in in sort of the world I live in, in Japan studies, um, defined broadly. Um, there's always this running joke that, you know, nobody's going to take your class unless you put anime in the title. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, I, how do you navigate that kind of course title terrain? I haven't put Bollywood on the title mm -hmm. yet. <laughs> um, and part of it is just the privilege of, of being here at Stanford, where enrollment is not as much of an issue as it might be at state schools, other places that I have taught as well. So I'm very aware, checking my privilege, kind of. Uh, it allows me then to actually 
be more adventurous. And I offered for the first time a course on the art cinemas of India, uh, which, you know, you typically it would be a kind of risky proposition because uh, when people think of Indian cinema, they think of Bollywood, especially for undergraduates. Um, but the course turned out to be really successful with some of my students. A graduate student who works on new media, for example, commented um, in their evaluations that uh, this course helped them recontextualize the American avant-garde uh, because it made them think about the kind of uh, economic, political economy that avant-garde um, films and videos actually emerge from in a way that's sublimated in Western theory of avant-garde video, right? So uh, actually going to another uh, culture helped them look at their own primary objects very differently. Well, you know, in these discussions of querying, a lot of it seems to go back to um, where we are as researchers, where we are as uh, teachers um, when we're teaching. So whether we're teaching at Stanford or in the West Indies or at a state school, um, but also, you know, where you've done your training, your research, where you're positioning yourself. And um, could you talk a little bit about the, the sort of positionality of the researcher? How do you think that comes into play when we're talking about this kind of West versus non-West um, binary? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is spectatorial desire and pleasure and how that informs um, our scholarship as well. Uh, film and media scholars start off as film and media fans. Um, and it's really that fandom that drives the scholarship, the objects that we choose to write about. Uh, but we're often um, kind of required by scholarly kind of codes to, to kind of... Um, to write out that that deep love that we have for these objects. And so I find it really interesting to tell students to foreground their, um, their love, their pleasures, their desires in interacting with these objects. What do they, what do, they do to you? Uh, so in the melodrama course, we spent a lot of time talking about tears and what makes us cry, at what point do we cry? What happens to the body when we cry? When do we fall asleep while watching the movies? Is, uh, is going to sleep while watching a movie different than going to sleep otherwise. Um, so, it, and these are profound questions about how we consume media now uh, and how watching a film on Netflix in your own house is very different from watching it in a screening room with your classmates around you, etc. Uh, so it's really the habitus, the, the kind of contexts in which we consume media objects and how as scholars, if we foregrounded that, uh, cinephilia, for example, is really kind of central to... Uh, to the way we write about um, about films or the dancer actresses that I write about. Um, I write because there is a certain project of recovering the labor um, and the kind of the contributions of these uh, women to the cinema that has been erased completely. Um, so these desires are multiple and they have different kinds of projects, different things arise from them. So I'm really glad that uh, that pleasure, spectatorial pleasure and desire are being theorized um, in film scholarship. The, the one thing we haven't talked about is sort of this divide of West versus non-West to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of that divide? Do you think it's helpful or... Do you think maybe it's good to start with, uh, but then maybe we want to break it down? Um, where where do you sort of stand on the issue of using this idea of West and the rest or North and South and so on? And they are reductive binaries, of course, but they've been 
they're entrenched in long histories, colonial histories, and now histories of uneven globalization. Um, what I do find interesting, Bhaskar Sarkar, for example, uses um, the concept of plasticity. Uh, so this kind of multi-sided globalisms, translocal connections. So we could move away from the category of the nation state and kind of um, think about critical regionalisms, how particular regions speak to each other, um, right? So there, there's a particular region in India that a lot of the indentured labor went to the Caribbean from. Um, and so the kind of attachment to Bhojpuri, the language, is not a, a kind of generalized attachment to India. India as a nation wasn't even formed during this period of indentured labor. So it's an attachment to a particular region that has a long history of... <clears throat> of certain kinds of performance traditions, oral uh, narratives, etc. So thinking about translocal connections, uh, what has also been referred to as uh, critical cosmopolitics. Uh, so cosmopolitanism might be one way to decenter uh, the West and the rest binary and to see multiple sites that this kind of circulation, cultural circulation is multi-directional. It's also uneven. Uh, and that unevenness is part of the excitement of studying uh, the global, the transnational in this kind of critical and informed way uh, that there are multiple coexisting networks. This has been a really illuminating conversation. I think our listeners have a lot to take away and think about from our conversation. So I just want to thank you again so much for being on the show, Usha. Thanks so much, Frank. Thanks for having me on Acamedia. Great. Excellent work, Frank. Yeah, thanks, Frank, for, for putting that together. I really enjoyed, I mean, it, it's just really nice to, to think about performance in different kinds of ways mm -hmm. and to think about the phenomenological experience of what a dancer is, is dealing with during a performance as well as, as well as spectators interacting with it. And it really, I think, helps me reflect on how much we can study by just studying film or television. There's so yes. much there from elements of, of performance to the idea, you know, she brought up the idea of thinking about our blind spots. So what, in fact, are we not thinking about when we're studying something or teaching something and really have to force ourselves? And many of you have probably done that just recently. If you're on the semester system, many semesters have started and you probably looked at your syllabus and wanted to think about things like diversity and, uh, you know, including scholars of color, for instance, on your syllabus that you hadn't had before. Uh, but I think we need to do that with, with everything, not just still by an individual class. Um, all those things need to be circulating in our, in our brains. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And that was a really great interview for, for capturing that. Yeah, definitely. So thank you, Frank. And we look forward to more work from you. Because now, now, now that you're in, you're in for life. Yep, there's no getting out now. That's right. So what else is up? So you know, you we watching anything? Yeah, good? Uh, I've I've been rewatching The Good Place, the NBC sitcom, mm -hmm. and that is because I am teaching a class on The Good Place. It is called The Good Class. That's a good title. <laughs> it is, and uh, it's a one credit class. So just six sessions we have, and the showcase section is going to be. Good Place creator Michael Shore is coming to campus. I heard about that. Yeah, so our students are going to have a lunch session with him, and then he's doing a public talk and talking about, I believe, the title of the talk. It's a Q&A with myself, um, the philosophy pre professor Megan Sullivan, uh, who I'm co-teaching the class with, as well as Ricky Herbst, one of our faculty members in film, television, theater. And the it's something like, can television make you a better person, I believe, 
which Mike Schur shows Schur try to do. You know, of course, Parks and Recreation was one of his prior creations, and he's also had a hand in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So there's sort of a happy, optimistic outlook on his shows. I wonder if you could do a graph, like if you could plot television making you a better person versus television making you feel like you're a better person. And is mm-hmm. there like a is there a spot where both of those things are possible? Yeah. That's my only kind of mild skepticism about yeah. the whole concept. When I think that, and that ties in really well with The Good Place, and in particular the idea of how we, you know, and of course the, the premise of The Good Place, like earning points to, to go to The Good Place, but the fundamental idea behind that is being a good person. Yep. And what is, you know, particularly what are you doing to earn that as a genuine you know, motivation for yourself and not just, you know, for the the carrot of the good place. And that becomes a fundamental aspect of the show. And also things that, you know, tie in then with the condition of our world. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything of the show, but this becomes a an issue in season three, which is the one that just uh, passed, aired past year. And then we've got season four, the final season coming up. But the idea of you think might think you're doing something good and it turns out there's consequences you can't even recognize that spiral off from that. And in fact there's not good things happening. And the impossibility of actually doing anything good becomes a concern that can keep you up at night. So I think, I would argue, I think the show has darker undertones to it than the surface, but I don't know that people want to dwell on those darker ideas. And I assume season four will leave us in a happy place because that's what Michael Shore does. We're going to have to stay tuned, I guess. Yes. I'm I looking will, forward uh, to the talk next week. Yeah, yeah. We can report back about the talk. I'll report back about how the class goes, which, you know, a really deep dive into one show, and especially, I think, the interdisciplinary angle of this. So we're going to be delving into the media studies stuff of aesthetics, development, promotion, but also, of course, the philosophy angle, which I, will be new stuff to me. So I will be learning alongside our students. And um, that idea of kind of putting together the perspectives within our department, film, television, theater, and then the philosophy department, I think is a really exciting experiment. So I'll report back on how that goes. Yeah. New conversations are always good when you when you have different kinds of people at the table, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. Great. What have you been watching lately? Man, I... I watched the first season of Russian Doll mm-hmm. on your recommendation. Oh, great. And I, I found it really interesting because I didn't like anybody, yeah. um, especially for the first several episodes. Yeah. Um, you know, I found like there was nobody there that I that I particularly was, there was nobody there that I was inclined to identify with or care a whole lot about, but the, the puzzle becomes interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, you learn things about people that, that sort of uh, open them up. And so that seemed actually kind of interesting to me to build this world that you don't necessarily have clear points of identification right um, but an interesting narrative puzzle mm-hmm. and for me that show really kicked in is it alan is that the name of the guy I think so. yeah yeah again no spoilers but when when alan comes on board that yeah. that to me it really then becomes interesting yeah. um and it and it kind of deepens in yeah. a way and of course they are uh, that show was uh, we don't know how many watch it netflix doesn't tell us but at least got a lot of critical attention and they've renewed it for a second season which raises the question like what in the world is the second season going to be, and does there need to be a second season? The next day. Yeah, uh. I don't know. That's that's the thing. That's um, which you know ties back in with the good place because they are ending that after season four, and they've said they are doing that because they feel like they've got the story they've told, which is I think a good point. Season three has some moments where you feel like they're just kind of mm-hmm. dragging it out. So that good old classic television debate: are they telling the story to tell the story, or are they just trying to get more episodes out? So. 
We'll see what the and I and I trust you know Russian Doll I enjoyed so much I trust they'll be able to do something interesting with season two but I just don't have any idea what it'll be. Yeah, that'll be interesting to find out. Okay, All things right. to look forward to. Yeah. going forward in life, and in fact, here let me give you a few more things to look forward to because we got a lot of content recorded this summer. Um, so on my trip to England, I met up with Catherine Grant and we talked about video essays and it's going to be the fifth anniversary of In Transition coming up. So you've got that to look forward to. I also did an interview with um, Chiara Ferrari and Quinn Winchell in Italy. They're in a town called Matera, Italy. And I'll just I leave. I wish I could be in a town called Matera, Italy. It was amazing. And oh, I'm just going to okay. leave that open for why Matera matters. You can Google it if you'd like. Um, but I talked with them and you'll get to hear literally the sounds of Matera, Italy, when we get to that. And then finally, we also have upcoming, we went to do a special extended focus on the idea of disability and illness in higher ed among faculty and graduate students. And so we're going to kick that off. Liz Elsesser has an interview with Margaret Price talking about the issue of disability in higher education. So tons of good stuff Lots to look forward to. Stuff. And SEMS conferences in China and Pittsburgh. China and, and Pittsburgh. Matera. And Matera. I'm voting for Matera. SEMS Matera. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Bring it on. Great idea. All right. Happy fall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Hey, you know, fall's I like good. It. September's I th- my favorite month. Oh, is it really? I think so. Yeah. You know, the nights are getting cooler. It's drying out. Yeah. Okay. I can go along with that, I guess. Okay. Plus, you know, we got the pennant race. Yeah. You have your sports ball. Uh huh. I'm teaching. A, I'm teaching a class on sports and TV this semester. So the more sports happening, the better for me. And enjoy the uh, semester. Yeah. Thanks for sticking with us for 50 episodes. Or those of you who just joined us for this first episode, then 50 more we'll give you. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. And thank you very much to SCMS for uh, also supporting us greatly. This podcast is the audible portion of work that is done by the entire production team, and so we are grateful for all of our co-conspirators. So that would be Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. Todd Thompson's golden ears and compositional skills down at the University of Texas. We've got Stephanie Brown on the move. She is now at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. So good luck there, Stephanie. And Frank Mondelli at Stanford. And finally, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester. It's a good team. It is a great team. We couldn't do it without all of their help. And also special thanks to Usha Ayer at Stanford. And thank you to Pamela Wojcik, the now past president of SCMS and our Notre Dame colleague. I would imagine that that is probably a title she is perfectly happy to, to wear. I bet she's that, that morning she woke up, the first day she was past president, I bet that had to feel pretty good. And good luck to Paula Massoud, taking over as president of SCMS. Go get him. Yep. Yep.